Matthew 9, and we're going we're gonna to go Matthew 9, starting in verse number 9, and we're going to read down through verse number 17. And uh, let's just start by reading, and uh, you can follow along if you want to turn in your, in your copy of the scripture there, and I'll, I'll read it aloud. Matthew chapter 9, picking up in verse number 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, what do we, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the, the patch tears away from the garment, and its worst tear is made. And neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us as we study to understand this passage. Father, thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ again in his life and his ministry. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and uh, you interacted, you taught, you showed your authority. And uh, Lord, we know how valuable that is just in learning, but most of all, we know your gift and your sacrifice. Even some of these things in this text point to that today. So might we see you in your call? Might we see you in, in your purpose for coming today? And may we glorify you. And uh, may we truly believe in our hearts, not just in our minds and with our tongues, what we've sung recently, just now, that there is no better thing than to know you. And uh, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title for today is Jesus on Mission. Jesus on Mission. And we've begun to see this, haven't we? We've begun to see him as he's come down off the mountain where he taught the Sermon on the Mount, and he's begun to show his authority by his works and by his words. And uh, so far we've looked at six miracles of Jesus in two groups of three, and we've seen his authority unfolding, and we've begun to get a better and a broader picture of who he is. And uh, Matthew, in his gospel record, has kind of grouped these stories together to make a point. Um, all of these stories uh, also occur in, in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke, but Matthew, as he's writing to his audience, he's, he's grouping them together. And he does that for teaching purposes. So all these happened. They didn't necessarily happen in this order, but we look at them in this order because they tell us something about who Jesus is. And as Matthew's writing, he's unveiling more, more about who Jesus is, what he does. And today we'll see more about why he came. We've seen that he's master in, in teaching with the Sermon on the Mount. Master in healing in many ways, master of creation in calming the wind and seas, 
master over spiritual beings in casting out demons, and master over even sin in the last miracle we saw where he healed the man, but first he forgave his sins. In our text today, we see some of Jesus' own words on who he is, why he came, and we want to look at what that means for all of us. A little question by way of introduction. How many of you here enjoy talking on the phone? I'm not going to raise my hand for that because I don't really enjoy talking on the phone. I don't see many hands. Maybe a couple slipped up, but you looked around and nobody else had their hands up, so you put them back down. And uh, now everybody is not going to call anybody ever again, uh, at least from this church. But uh, have you ever had somebody call you or you called them and you sort of just start in on conversation? And it kind of meanders from topic to topic and here and there, person to person, et cetera. And you're enjoying the conversation. It's, it's nice to hear from that friend or family member, but nothing specific really gets discussed. And then maybe after 10 or 15 minutes, the person might say, oh, yeah, by the way, the reason that I called is whatever. And then they'll give some specific reason. It's not that the rest of the conversation wasn't useful or meaningful. It was. It was good. But it was sort of a buildup. Well, in our passage today, we start to get to a little bit of that. The reason that I called you is with Jesus. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we mentioned several times that if you take all the ethics and the good principles in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll have a good life, perchance. But if you miss Jesus in the rest of his ministry, then you've really missed most of it. It's not that the principles and the teachings aren't good and valuable. They are. They're timeless and life-giving, but they're not the whole thing. We've all heard the saying, and it's attributed to many people, the, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's true when we watch Jesus' life as well, when we interact with his teachings and listen to the claims that he makes. And one of the most important things that we can take note of are places where Jesus says things like, the reason that I came is, or this is why I came, or this is for this purpose. If you remember in the, the first set of three miracles in chapter number eight, we saw Jesus interacting with the outcasts of society, specifically a man with leprosy and a Roman centurion who was unwelcomed in a Jewish world. Jesus was willing to enter into the uncleanness of the leper, to the social stigma of the centurion, in order to show mercy. Last week we saw that theme again as he was willing to enter into the danger and fear of the two men that were possessed by demons and to calm the storm and sleep in that storm that had the disciples, the fishermen, fearing for their lives. Entering in and healing, entering in and saving. That seems to be a theme that we're picking up on here already and we see that today in Jesus' words. We have seen other purpose statements already in the book of Matthew. For instance, in Matthew 1, we saw this from the angel, uh, uh, Joseph, as he considered these things, the announcement of the birth. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for or because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill, or in order to fulfill, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. 
We've seen another one. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but and we can insert here, I have come to fulfill them. And in other scriptures, not just in Matthew, we see one in the book of Mark, Mark 10, 45 says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another one in John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in Luke, we see the parallel to this passage today, where again, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but we could insert, I have come to call sinners to repentance. When Jesus gives a purpose statement, we should pay attention. You know, this passage is life-giving. I hope we can see today this big idea. Jesus came with divine purpose to call sinners to himself and to usher in a new era of God's redemption story. We're gonna see that in three sections today. And again, I've given you some blanks uh, on your outline. And the first one we see in verses nine and 10 is he came as the friend. He came as the friend. Verse nine says, as Jesus passed on from there, we'll stop there for a second because we have to remind ourselves, where did he come from? Where was he coming from? Well, in Matthew's narrative, he's coming from the place where he just healed the paralyzed man but he healed him both physically and spiritually again, right? Because he forgave his sins. And if you remember, that caused a big stir among the scribes and they accused him of blasphemy. In other places we read, it's because only God can forgive sins. But he did have that authority and he even proved it to them because he said, in order that you can know the son of man has this authority. And he turned and said to the man, rise up and walk. And with that story in our minds, we come to verse nine. Jesus passed on from there, and then Matthew records his own story. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. We've mentioned this already. There have been a lot of sort of stigma um, in some of these miracles, the, the leper, the, the possessed man, the Roman centurion. Jesus interacted with these things. He entered in, he, he came close to them, he touched them. We also saw that in one place, Christ's power became very personal for Peter as Jesus came into his house and healed his mother-in-law who was laying sick, very well, probably going to die. And here, just like Jesus' power and authority became personal there for Peter's family here, Matthew records how Jesus' authority became personal in his own life and experience. Not in a healing, but in a simple command, a simple phrase, follow me. We saw that phrase in Matthew 4, where Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John, the two pair of fishermen brothers. And now we see it with Matthew, the very man who, who wrote down these accounts. But we can ask the question, why does he place his story here? In, in a couple weeks, we're going to see a whole list of the disciples that were following Jesus. Why couldn't have Matthew just 
stuck his name in that list, which he did, and, and left it as good enough. You might even say, Matthew, isn't it a little bit prideful to kind of enter in your story right here and get your little spotlight? But that's not it at all. If you see, it says that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Why does Matthew place his story here? Right after the forgiveness of sin and in the mix with a bunch of stories about outcasts of society. But we talked about this a little bit before, quite a while ago, um, because we started Matthew like a year ago, but uh, we'll give a little reminder here. The men sitting at the tax booths were considered, at best, kind of political opportunists. And at worst, they were considered traitors in contract with the Roman government to collect taxes and, in this case, by the sea, probably collecting import duties from ships that were coming across the lake from non-Jewish territory or non-Roman territory. The tax collectors were known, uh, true or untrue, as greedy and conniving. It's recorded that they could bolster their collections by demanding more than the amount due and then keeping whatever was extra. And uh, in a Jewish world that had been taken over by Romans, Roman sympathizers and collaborators were not loved. They were not really welcome. They were mostly despised. And here's Matthew in that place. Matthew is one of his names. In uh, other places, we see that he's called Levi, a good Jewish name, named after Jacob's third son in the priestly tribe of Israel. His other name here, Matthew, means gift of God. It was common for men to have two surnames, so to speak, uh, sort of like Simon Peter, who we've already seen. But among the outcasts in these stories, among the forgiving of sins, right there, Matthew places himself a tax gatherer. The authority of Jesus became real for Matthew because he reached out to him, the tax collector. Hated by many of his peers, no doubt. And he called him, even him. I can't help but think as Matthew was writing these accounts of Jesus reaching out and touching the leper. And as Jesus being so willing to say to the Roman centurion, I'll come to your house right now and heal your servant. And Matthew thinking, he called me, even me. And the next verse makes the point that I think Matthew's making even more clear because it says in verse 10, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So it wasn't just Matthew. Matthew is a, maybe the, the, the premium example here because we know him. But it was many tax collectors and sinners. And notice that grouping, tax collectors and sinners. That might sound odd to our ears, but it was a common reference in Jesus' day. Tax collectors, again, were often equated with, with public traitors and publicly shamed. The sinners were often called the, the Amharats, or the people of the land. They were the Israelites who weren't as staunch followers of the law as, say, the scribes and Pharisees. They were the commoners. They were the normal people. They were the people who were around, but they were known to have their issues, so to speak. We talked a little bit before when we talked about Jesus calling disciples 
about what usually took place with the, the teachers, the rabbis, and their followers, the teachers and their disciples. Most of the rabbis of the day would have had some disciples, but they would have been the cream of the crop of, of the Jewish young men. They would have been those that were steeped in the law, in the Talmud, and the traditions. They would have been those eager to learn and fulfill and learn to interpret the commandments. Yet who here is Jesus calling and who is he reclining with? tax collectors and the sinners, the commoners, the, the people of the earth. Later in Matthew chapter 11, we'll read that Jesus is remembered and noted as being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now that would have been a, a slur for someone to say that about Jesus. But we see here that Jesus took that role on purposefully and extended mercy. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a, a friend that reaches out in mercy to those who need it, but don't deserve it. We read in John 15 uh, about his disciples. He said this, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus says this of his disciples. And to sum up, we could say, you are my friends. I've chosen you and I've chosen you for a purpose to go and bear fruit for my kingdom and to love one another while you're doing it. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He does choose the, the ragtag, so to speak, the outcast, the needy, the sinner. He, he chooses them and he changes them day by day into his image and he commissions them to love one another and spread the message of the gospel. And Matthew puts himself here in the story because he wants all his readers to know he was that outcast. He was that despised one. He was that traitor. It was true. But Jesus' authority and his mercy became real to him when he came up to him at the tax booth and said, follow me. Have you heard and answered that call, oh friend? You and I are Matthew in this story. We're not Jesus, we're Matthew, we're the outcasts. Uh, you and I are the sinner, but Jesus extends his call to the weary, the sinner, to come to him. Have you heeded that call? Have you found Jesus to be who he is, in this case, a friend of sinners? I have, that's the reason why I can stand here today. And speak these things to you. He came as a friend. Secondly, he came as a physician. Reading on in the same paragraph, pick it up in verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, that is Jesus reclining at table with the tax collectors and sinners, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'll stop there for a second. Uh, in Luke's 
sort of a version of this story or his recording of this story, we read actually that this was Matthew's house. Uh, Matthew threw a banquet. He hosted a banquet for Jesus, maybe a celebration of, of this mercy, a celebration of his power, of his authority, and of his message. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's that same grouping again, tax collectors and sinners. And we could ask the question of observation, why were the Pharisees even around? They, they wouldn't have associated themselves with this banquet, with the, the people of the earth like this. Luke's gospel tells us that it was a great banquet, a, a large feast, a big meal, and maybe large enough to gather the, the wondering eyes and the curious minds from the outside. And the Pharisees sort of said, inquiring minds want to know. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's kind of the way you would ask that question. Why does your teacher do this? Because they knew it wasn't their teacher. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man and forgave his sins, the charge was a blasphemy. In other words, the thought was, who does he think he is? When Jesus calmed the, the storm in the boat, the disciples asked the question, what kind of man is this? And here, when Jesus is now eating with these common people, the question is similar. All of these questions come together to give us a glimpse into Jesus and his mission. And the question being asked is, who does he think he is? What kind of man is this? Why would he do that? And with that being asked, the question is answered in Jesus' words. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's that purpose statement. Why did Jesus come? In this instance, this is it. Luke records it as well, as we already read. I came not to come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. And he starts with that metaphor. Jesus came as the physician, and he is the great physician, the healer, as we've seen. But he's also the healer of the soul by forgiving sin. And do you know something? Sometimes that need of a physician is there, but not recognized. A doctor can provide no help to someone who refuses to believe that they have anything wrong with them. Now, that analogy is not perfect because God can and does change hearts, but that's exactly what we need. We need a heart change. Before Jesus called Matthew, Matthew was just living his life. He had made his choices. He had chosen a path to some financial success, maybe chosen to place himself in that position knowing there would be some backlash. He didn't probably take a whole lot of thought and consideration of the eternal ramifications of his choices, but Jesus called him. And after Matthew had gone through his whole several years of walking with Jesus and years after, he writes himself into that story saying, no, I, I needed the same thing that the paralyzed man needed. I needed the same thing that the leprous man needed. We need a heart change. That is what Jesus came preaching, right? He came, and we've read it before in Matthew 3, 2. He came preaching, repent, 
for the kingdom is at hand. Like the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. That's the condition that we find ourselves in when we come to the grace of Christ, poor in spirit, knowing we have no spiritual riches to offer, mourning, realizing the deadly effects of sin in our lives and in the world, mourning, yearning to be delivered from our sin, uh, meek and lowly, knowing that we can't earn anything. We have nothing to lift ourselves up on, but this is a person who can be helped. And that's why Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not those who are well, but those who are sick that need a physician. And then Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. And this quote is really telling. It's, it's really revealing. And it probably would have been a little bit offensive to the Pharisees. He says, go and learn what this means in verse 13. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now we read it there. And if we just read that, it sounds like a good saying, sounds true, sounds like something like God would say, and he did. He said it through his prophet Hosea in Hosea 6. Now the Pharisees, students of the law, knew it better than we did, no doubt, would have known this quote, and they probably also would have known what came after it as well. In Hosea 6, chapters uh, four through six, uh, we read this, Hosea writes, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. Now, if we were to stop there, it kind of sounds like a love poem. Your love is like a morning cloud. But then he writes, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light because I desired steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That passage that Jesus references there and tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means, is a passage of judgment on those whose love and knowledge of the Lord is shallow and quickly fading away. I desire mercy. There was a form of righteousness in the Pharisees' lives. But within them, there was no mercy, and there was no depth of love in their heart. Now, we know what they denied, that Jesus is God, the Son of God. And he was standing right there in front of them, eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they denied him. They, they decried what he was doing. And can there be any sadder story? Now in this, we can be one of two people. We can be as the tax collectors and the sinners, the people of the earth, the, the commoners who need mercy and know they need mercy, or we can be like the Pharisees who are convinced of self-righteousness so much that all we can see are the faults of others, that all we can see is other people's failure, others' sins, Brothers and sisters, if we're ever in a place where we can see only the flaws and faults of others, but refuse to admit any of our own, we're in a dangerous place. 
We need that reminder. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Of course, that was referring to the sacrifices that made atonement. But as Hosea said, and as Jesus reiterates it, the sacrifices were empty without a change of heart. And he tells this to the Pharisees who ask this question. Why does your teacher eat with these people? And they'd missed it. All throughout this section of Matthew, Jesus has been showing mercy after mercy after mercy. And here he calls for hearts also that are filled with mercy. We are recipients of it. And as another of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. But if you are in that place of the tax collectors and the sinners, the commoners, the people of the earth, then again, know that Jesus, the Lord, is is near to the brokenhearted. He is a friend of sinners. He calls in his mercy and forgiveness to come to him, repent of sin, and experience the life that only he gives. He came as a friend, he came as a physician. And finally, we see in verses 14 through 17, he came as the bridegroom. And uh, this is a, a new change of story here, another change of scene. And uh, sounds a little bit odd at first, but let's not miss the message of what is being said. In this interaction, Jesus is speaking with the disciples of John the Baptist. And uh, John, as we recall, was the, the forerunner of Jesus. He was his cousin by birth, born about six months ahead of time. And he, was, he went before him, called by God from the womb to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight the path. And he did, he called for, for solemn repentance as Israel prepared to meet her Messiah. His ministry was one of pretty stern preaching of clear warnings. And Jesus would later say that there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And as a teacher, John had his own group of men who who followed him, who attached themselves to him. And they came and asked Jesus an honest question. I think it's an honest question. And they asked it because Jesus was not John the Baptist. He was different. John the Baptist was sort of the last prophet of the Old Testament age, so to speak. He was the last of the voices on the scene before the the final voice came on the scene. John's work was preparatory, where Jesus' work is final. And uh, it says the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, a valid question, as fasting was a normal part of the devoted Jewish life. Jesus taught on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught that we should do it, He said, when you fast, he said that it should be private between us and God, a time of secret devotion, not a display of self-righteousness, but a heartfelt appeal to God. Jesus himself did fast. We read in in, uh, Matthew 4, I think, that he fasted for 40 days before his ministry began. But now Jesus and his disciples were known for not fasting. Why is that? Honest question that they ask you. A worthy question. After all, John had probably told his disciples that this is the one that was promised. 
like when Jesus was baptized by John. And John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the promised one and the deliverer. The deliverer. So John's disciples are asking, why is he so different? And Jesus said to them, he gives an answer. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus makes an analogy here, but it was really more than an analogy. It was an answer to their question, but also a statement of who he is. The bridegroom, or we might just say groom, is Jesus. He is the bridegroom, and when the bridegroom is at the wedding feast, there's no need for mourning, no need for fasting. And the image of the bridegroom or the husband of God's people is spattered throughout the Old Testament. But we've already read from Hosea today, and I want to look at that again because it's there as well. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16 says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. He says a little bit later, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In other words, there will be a time of redemption, a time of calling back from sin and false gods, and a time where God said he would be the husband, the bridegroom of his people. And also wrapped up in that promise is, you will know the Lord. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Jesus was putting himself in this place. The Lord, the the bridegroom, was with his people. There was no need to mourn. Now, what are some reasons that people fast? Some of these are scriptural and others may be just traditional, but people fast because of mourning. People fast to prepare for things. People fast in times of waiting. People fast for closeness to God, for confession of sin. People fast for clarity of thought and prayer. People fast for sanctification. All of these are good and righteous desires, and they're all met in Jesus. Literally, the disciples were with the Lord, the bridegroom, who had promised that you will know me, you will know me. Now, he was there, he was teaching them, he was instructing them, he was walking with them, but as he said, he would be taken away. And we will see that. Jesus was taken from them, crucified, killed on the cross, and that would be cause for mourning. But the image here is Jesus is the bridegroom. He ushers in this age of knowing the Lord, of redemption through the Messiah. The prophets had promised him. John the Baptist was his forerunner, and now Jesus is it. It's new. It's what was promised, but it's new. So when John's disciples ask, why is it different? And Jesus sort of says, because it is different. It's new. And he goes on to use other uh, images of newness. He says, In verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth or brand new woven cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is 
in verse 17, neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. New cloth on an old garment that would shrink and tear the old garment even more. New wine and an old wineskin that would expand and burst the old wine-dried wineskin. Jesus is making all things new. This is the new age that he's ushering in. Jesus and the gospel are kind of the the new wine here that he puts into new wineskin. And if nothing else, we could say that the new wineskins are people because he's making his people new. He's doing a new thing. It's like the mystery that Paul talks about in Colossians, the mystery revealed to the Gentiles, that's you and me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the bridegroom, and that image carries throughout the New Testament as well. Paul says, when he taught on marriage, husbands, love your wives, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see that image of the bride and the bridegroom and also the newness of this all because of Jesus' work? And in all of this, do you see the progression? We started out with a story about outcasts and sinners, and we end up talking about the holy, pure, and splendid bride of Christ. And the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of the work of redemption that Jesus does is that those are the same people. The mercy of Christ makes this so. And Jesus is still making it so. Believer, do you see Christ's mercy that has turned you from an outcast into the very bride of Christ? Rejoice in this. Don't take it for granted. And if you are here today without Christ, know that you are in need of that mercy. You are. But by faith, by trusting in him, he calls out still, come unto me. And that mercy that can take a tax collector and make a disciple, that can take an outcast and make it into a, a glorious and holy bride of Christ, is still working. May you come unto Christ for mercy. He came with a divine purpose. To call sinners like you and me to himself. To make us new. To change us by his grace and as we follow him. And in this, he's ushering in, or he did usher in, this new era of redemption that we call the gospel message. Do you see him today? Do you hear him calling? If so, heed his voice. Lord, thank you for this, these images. Thank you for these transformational teachings. Thank you for the humility of men like Matthew who you use to write your inspired scripture 
the thank you for the picture that gives that there is hope for any of us. Thank you that you kept your promises, promises that you made like to the prophet Hosea, that there would come a day when the Lord would betroth his people and that they would know him. And Lord, if nothing else, we see that fulfilled in our own hearts today because you have called us unto yourself. You've called us and loved us like a husband should love his bride and you're making us new. And one day you'll present us spotless and pure. This is all wonderful, maybe too wonderful for our understanding, but in it we know in the mystery is the gospel. And may that gospel go forth clearly into hearts today that need to hear it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.